when this local really freaky, freaky friend of mine ends up on the cover of Time and Newsweek. 1975, the Jersey Shore. And Stephen Van Zandt's family still doesn't get this whole rock and roll thing. But suddenly, his friend and bandmate skyrockets to fame. It really helped the family situation. <laughs> now, 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 Bruce, Bruce hated, hated every minute of it. I loved it. You know, I just loved it. I'm like, this is crazy. Uh, my friend's on the cover of Time and Newsweek, you know. All of a sudden, my parents were like, uh, wait a minute. There must be something to this, you know. There's something's going on here. This is Before the Cheering Started. I'm Bud Mishkin. It's hard to imagine Stephen Van Zandt as anything but a rock and roller. In part one of our conversation, we discussed his obsession with music growing up down the Jersey Shore, the early bands and clubs, his frustration with the business, quitting the business to work construction in the early 70s. If you've ever driven Route 287 in New Jersey, you have Stephen to thank and how an injury playing flag football on the weekends provided the unlikely path back to his first love, music. In part two of our conversation, it's the mid-70s, and Van Zant is creating and producing the beloved band Southside Johnny and the Asbury Jukes, and he's getting more serious about writing songs. Very tough. Uh, I have very high standards when it comes to the stuff. Uh, so I know I know when it's when it's great. I mean, I'm I make a point of it. I can't do anything else at this point. I have to really like it, whether it's good, whether it's great, whether it's going to be popular or not. That's not my business. My business is to realize my own potential whenever possible. You know, and I know when I when that is. You know what I mean? I have achieved my potential in this particular moment on this particular song or in this particular script or in this particular performance. There, there's, a, there's a high standard growing up in the Renaissance, as, as I did. When you have an era when the best art being made was also the most commercial, that's a, that's a Renaissance. And, and I grew up with that kind of high standard, so I'm never quite getting there. I'm never quite getting to those high standards of the Beatles or the Rolling Stones or the Who or the Kinks or the Yardbirds. You know, the birds or Bob Dylan, uh, you know, but I'm but I'm but it's always in my mind, you know, to, to, to reach for that kind of height. People look at the Jersey Shore and Asbury Park and that era. You know, what was it about it musically? All these people musically kind of came from there. And there have been a lot of songs written about it. But you wrote It's Been a Long Time. And it's performed in the 90s, early 90s, with you and Bruce and Southside Johnny and your friends and colleagues. It's a gorgeous song. And you don't have to have grown up there to feel that uh, why it's such an evocative song for what you guys were going through. What's that process like in terms of writing that song at that time? The, the next major breakthrough was the song, uh, This Time It's For Real. Mm -hmm. Because we, we were about to do the first national broadcast to promote the Jukes' first album. And we had this crazy, wonderful record company guy named Steve Popovich, who was um, you know, vice president at Epic, and he, he's the one who signed the Jukes. And, and without him, I don't know what we would have done, because he was completely supportive of every crazy idea we ever had. And, 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 and he would have his own. 
and, and one of which was to have a national broadcast out of, out of the Stone Pony in Asbury Park. Now, that doesn't sound like a big deal maybe these days. <laughs> it was nuts in those days. You know, never, nothing like that had ever happened. So we're getting ready to do this broadcast, and then we're going to play live as, to promote the first album. And Jimmy Iovine, uh, a very good friend of mine who had engineered the first uh, album, he engineered Born to Run, which is where I met him. He says, you know, you should write a song for the, for, for the event, which was uh, an, an odd suggestion because, you know, you're there to promote the new album. You know, why would you start with, a, with a, a song that's not on the album? You know, that's kind of a weird suggestion. But I, for some reason, it hit me like a good idea. And for the first time ever, this was the first time I wrote something autobiographical, something that was actually about us about what we were doing at that moment. And that's the only song on that uh, second Jukes album that really does that, I think. Uh, the rest are all normal type of, you know, general songs. But this one was the first time I ever wrote something autobiographical. Uh, and, and that would end up being a, a huge second breakthrough in my writing that would, you know, kick in later more for my solo career, really, than the Jukes we decide to do a Jukes reunion record uh, in the 90s, probably 15 years since we worked together, I guess, something like that, since, uh, since Hearts of Stone. And Hearts of Stone, uh, the third album I had done with the Jukes, had become a kind of a classic in its own way and, you know, always was top 100 records of all time and, you know, got a lot of attention as a classic album. So I was conscious of the fact that I had to equal that or, or beat it. As I'm writing this new Jukes album, I thought, well, let's, I'll write a song that's kind of about the old days, you know, about, about us coming up, you know, kind of a, like, like, you know, the Mamas and Papas, Creek Alley, you, you know, that song, mm -hmm. you know, talking about naming names and, you know, like, you know, that kind of like, you know, I thought that was always a fun, a fun song. They were a great group, very underrated group and, and great, great songs. So I wrote, it's been a long time to just, uh, because it was a reunion anyway. Talk about our history a little bit. You hit that one out of the park. Yeah, yeah, I must say. I, 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 you know, when I hear it now, I'm like, wow, you know, I really did. Get, I got that one, yeah. The E Street Band happens. Then your solo career happens. Your intense uh, following of politics. Sun City happens, which is a huge, huge uh, kind of cultural moment in the mid-'80s. And helps lead, as you've discussed, the cultural boycott to the economic boycott to the freeing of Nelson Mandela and to, to the change that you and others you know, dreamed of. And there's even a, a footage of you, I think it's in 1990 at Wembley, and forget about thousands, there might be 100,000 people yeah. there. And when, and when they bring you on to sing Sun City, the place just goes insane. As a fan and admirer, let me say, you never left our consciousness because the music remains the same. And we kept on listening to the music, even if we didn't, there were not concerts to see, but you were there, okay, in our heads. But as I understand, you're spending a lot of your time walking your dog uh, near your apartment in Manhattan. This is long before Sopranos. This is long before the induction speech for the Young Rascals to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And Bruce is off doing his own thing. And so, I'm curious about the whole notion of before the cheering started, 
Was there ever a moment or maybe two when you started to wonder, will the cheering resume or will I be in that setting once again? Yeah, this is a complicated uh, subject, uh, which was, you know, a, a, a big a big part of the book. The cheering ended for me in 89 with my fifth solo album. Uh, the tour ended with a solidarity concert for the Chinese protesters in Tiananmen Square. And we had a ridiculous, talk about a, an audience, uh, there was estimates of 200, 300,000. It looked like Woodstock. And I was the only act. <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> No pressure, though. <laughs> uh, we, put, we, we put the promoter's cousin on as an opener just for, you know, just as a favor, but, but, but literally, you know, the only act anybody ever heard of. Hold on one second here. You put the promoter's cousin on in front of 100,000 people? Uh, no, no, more. Okay. More. It was at least 200. <laughs> wait, wait, let's say, and I don't, I don't know. No, as far as the cast, eye could see. Not casting in aspersions, but let's say that the guy or woman was good. All right. What's the next gig going to be after that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and safe to say his career was downhill. <laughs> Where'd you play your last gig in front of 200,000 people? Where's your next gig? Oh, I'm down at uh, Joe's bar on the corner, right? That's exactly right. Well, it's on Friday night. They get a good crowd on that Friday night. <laughs> anyway, go ahead. Uh, I never, never thought about that. But, uh, I'm trying to simplify this very complicated subject, but basically uh, my solo career had been a very bizarre one uh, where the themes and the, and the concepts of each record were different and uh, almost like a different movie. And, and so the music was very different from album to album, like the soundtrack to that movie, which made for a very satisfying artistic adventure, which is how I was treating it. And made for an impossible career. You could not, you cannot do a career changing that much. So another epiphany hits me uh, as I'm looking out at this crowd. I'm like, this crowd is here for my political accomplishments, really. You know, yeah, they're enjoying the show and it's great. You know, but I'm like, have I succeeded in, 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 in reaching these people musically, really? You know, are they coming to my next show? Are they, are they buying my records, this crowd? You know, no. So the cheering was satisfying and, and wonderful. And, and we had nothing but great gigs in the 80s, great audiences. But it never paid for itself. You know, it never, it never became a dependable revenue. The cheering was meaningful artistically, but I never had the cheering that meant commercial success. I said, I'm, I'm kind of done. I, I've kind of learned what I wanted to learn. I said what I wanted to say. And uh, I don't know where to go from here, really. So I'm just going to um, drift off into the, into the wilderness here. And, and so the 90s, the 90s became a lost decade for me, really. And I literally, you know, I mostly walked my dog for seven years, as we talked about before. You know, I produced a couple things. I thought maybe I'll be a professional producer now, you know, because I've only really produced my friends. And I tried that and, and uh, I didn't like it. I didn't, I, you know, I had a couple of conversations with people and I, I, I realized I can't compromise enough to do this. I have to be in more control 
in order to keep my standards up. So I, that was not, that's not, that's not the profession for me. So I, you know, I produced a couple of, of friends of mine. We did the Southside Johnny reunion record, do a little this, a little bit of that. So it was kind of very much a lost decade. I wasn't okay with it because I like working, you know, and I couldn't really work anymore. No record company really wanted to sign me anymore since the success of Sun City, really, um, which was a little too successful in the wrong way. You know, you can feed people in Africa, but you, you start bringing governments down and people get nervous and uh, they think, you know, we're next. <laughs> so, so, you know. In the immediate aftermath and then for years afterwards, the business wouldn't let you alone because of the success of Sun City? Part of my mission was to politicize all of my friends and politicize the business so that political activity, just discussions of, about issues, could be a normal, natural part of our business. You didn't have to be extreme like me, but by being extreme, when I was very, and I was very consciously extreme, I thought, let, let me be the extreme example of what can be accomplished. And hopefully that'll catch on and then become a, a normal part of our business, which, which did happen. Okay. But not immediately. You know, it, it took a few years, you know, for the business to kind of adjust to that kind of thinking because, you know, the business is a business. All they want to do is make money. You know, and here I am encouraging people to do things for free. You know, it's just, you're going to have a problem with that. But in the end, you know, I've always been very proud of, of not only the music business, but the entire entertainment business, actors and, and, and everybody else. Because whenever there's a problem, we're always the first ones there. We're always the first ones to help. You don't see the oil companies helping. You know what I mean? You don't see the car companies lining up to help. You know, it's always, it's always us entertainers. So I've always been proud of that, you know, and I, and I kind of spread that thing a, a little more deeper, you know, in terms of the politics, because... Political issues is different than social issues. You start pointing the finger and, and naming names, makes people a little bit more nervous. But, you know, well, that's what you got to do sometimes, you know, to get things done. When you went to South Africa yeah. and you're like sleeping in a tent, as you once told me, at night <laughs> or, or you're in situations that are, uh, shall we say, far away from the limelight <laughs> and your friends are playing to stadiums around the world Understanding your passion for it and how you had to go 100% in, are there moments of, how did this uh, come about? There was plenty of looking in the mirror and, and saying, what a putz, you know. <laughs> uh, there, Hold on, let me, let me write that one down. Uh, that's a, what a putz. That's an old uh, Sicilian expression, as I understand it, right? <laughs> it, it, it is, and, yeah. and, then one, uh, and one that, you know, uh, most historians use when, when, yeah. when, you know. That one crosses cultural lines, shall we say. <laughs> no. I believe the dog is just responding to your use of the <laughs> phrase, what a pup. <laughs> I realized it's a tough one. And again, uh, it, it took me an entire book to try and understand this. And, and, I, and I still don't quite understand it. But, but it's kind of two things simultaneously. You know, you realize I should never have left the band. And yet, Everything I accomplished, I accomplished because I left the band. So you, you got that constant, you know, paradox, you know, whatever, contradiction going on in your mind all the time. And I'm under a blanket sneaking into Soweto while my friends are buying their first mansions. You know, <laughs> you know, you think, 
what the hell am I doing here? So, you know, honestly, it was one of the reasons why I wrote the book, among others, but, but to try and actually figure this stuff out a little bit. But, but in, in the end, I decided, you know, I, look, I'm all, I'm all in. I've ruined my career. I've killed my, I've killed my career in terms of the, the arc, the trajectory that had been straight up right into the river. And even I, I co-produced Born in the USA. So right up until then, straight up. And then you, you get into this other thing that is kind of sideways and, and it ends up accomplishing some things and doing some night making some nice records and uh, accomplishing uh, not only artistic things, but also political things. But you've blown your ability to make a living. You were supposed to be a rich rock star. I'm very comfortable. Although I've only, I only, only was, was one for a short period of time, but I'm very comfortable being a rich rock star, you know, except I'm not one. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, and people think you are. And so you don't want to kind of whine and complain about, about being a successful, because I, I was a successful rock star. I was a successful actor, uh, successful in a lot of ways. But, you know, Rich wasn't one of them. You know, you have that extreme pain in the ass <laughs> of being more famous than you are rich, you know, <laughs> which, you know, sounds silly, you know, and, and you don't want to let people down and, and like say, listen, you know, how it comes up is whenever I'm trying to do something for charity or my foundation and I'm asking people for money, you know, whether it's my little Stevens policeman's ball, you know, I still give the biggest police fundraiser in the country or, or, or my, my rock and soul forever foundation. I always get a look from people like, why don't you pay for this yourself? <laughs> you know, like, what are you, what are you asking me for money for? You know? <laughs> and so it's, you know, it's a double-edged sort of sword of the, the, you know, the celebrity, which comes from the artistic success, you know, which I'm co completely proud of it. But I wish I could have stayed in the E Street band and done the same things. You've referenced the book several times. How long has the ex have you been working on it, and what has that experience been like? Fascinating experience, I must say. I tried it like 10, I don't know, 12, 15 years ago. It just felt way too early. And so the pandemic uh, hit. Okay, now what are you going to do? I got these new managers who are only 40 years too late, but, but you know, they, they did show up eventually. <laughs> and they were like, you know, why don't you write a book? And uh, like the six major publishers all wanted a book. So I said, well, all right, let me look, look back at what I started. And, and I, I really mostly rewrote the whole thing over this past year. The main two reasons for writing it was, was you know, uh, first of all, to literally try and understand my crazy life because it, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Uh, and secondly, to try and be useful and leave, leave something behind that's useful. You know, I'm not that interested in my life per se, but the things I've learned along the way, uh, I think are quite interesting, you know, and, and, could, and could actually be useful. And I think that's a question that most artists ask themselves. And I, I've always asked myself from the beginning of becoming a, an artist late in life, as I did, really, I've always asked me that question, how can I be useful? What's the purpose for what I'm doing? You know, when I, when I do these classes, I always encourage the students, do things with purpose. Write with purpose. Live with purpose. And I, I, think, I think there's some of that 
ends up uh, quite a bit of that is, is the book. You know, I wanted the book to be n- not a history book because, uh, you know, you're going to have all kinds of incorrect dates and, and incorrect things about my life. Where I couldn't care less about. On the other hand, I wanted it to be a reference book. I wanted it to end up being a reference book on, you know, what happens when you start acting or start producing television or, or you're directing or, or writing a song or arranging a, a song, starting a, a foundation or, or, you know, a lot of things along the way that I, I found I, I think could be useful for people. And, and that was really the reason to, to do it. It was kind of a mixed feeling, uh, the, the writing the book, you know, a little, a little bit depressing, you know, reliving my life, which uh, you, you relive the mistakes and that's painful. Well, I think people who are admirers of yours, and there are many, will be thankful that you took the time to do it. But also for all the mistakes that you allude to, there is a beauty every time you put on a Disciples of Soul record, or every time you listen to This Time It's For Real, or you watch the video of Sun City. The old expression, Duke Ellington expression, two types of music, good and the other kind. And, <laughs> and understandably, there are stories behind those stories, but there's that joy of that moment of, I've heard this song maybe 10,000 times, 10,001, that's going to be great. Among the many projects you got going on now, you're involved in a project to teach history through music. And so, you are involved with teachers all across the country. And um, how would the teachers at Middletown High School back in uh, 67, 68, uh, what would they have said if you had told them back then, you know, eventually I'm going to actually be in schools and I'm going to be working with teachers to help teach history? No way they would have believed it. No way. Tell us a little about the project. Uh, Yeah, I I was the worst student in the world. I was uh, called upon to... By the Music Teachers of America. This is, this is uh, I don't know, 15 years ago or, or so, to deal with the No Child Left Behind legislation, which had been put in because our math and science scores were so low worldwide that, you know, these geniuses thought, let's put this legislation in. And what happened was all the arts classes in America were canceled because of it. And, and this obsession with testing took over. And someday we're going to learn that testing isn't learning. That remains to be discovered. And by the way, every statistic shows if a kid takes music class, they do better in math and science. Okay. But that, that, that aside, they said, can you go to Washington, D.C. and see what you can do? I happen to have a friend booked up a meeting with Teddy uh, Kennedy. That's how long ago it was. And Mitch McConnell. And um, they both apologized and said, you know, it was unintended consequence. Uh, We didn't know all the arts classes would be canceled, but we're not going to fix it. I come back and I'm thinking, you know, what can we do? What can we do? And I said to them, well, we're not going to get instruments in kids' hands for a while. We'll have to find other ways to do that. And we have with Little Kids Rock and, and other organizations. But I said, how about this? How about we do a music history curriculum instead? Because we can sneak that in and it can be cross-curricular. You know, it can be music class. It can be history class. It can be English class, social studies. And the best part of it is it's good for all the students, not just musicians, you know. So the music teachers of America endorsed it. And then the social studies teachers endorsed it. And, and in the end, it, it serves three purposes. Uh, number one, 
the integration of the arts into the education system, which I feel very strongly about, can completely revolutionize how we learn in this country. And we're seeing it in action right now because we have not only 40,000 teachers who have registered, but we have partner schools beginning, an actual entire schools using our curriculum in all of the disciplines. So you integrate some kind of artistic sensibility and methodology into each, into science, into math, whatever it might be. And it completely changes the communication ability of these teachers because kids who are not comfortable with science and math are very comfortable with the other side of their brain, which is emotions and instinct and imagination. They, they come with that. You don't have to teach them that. All you have to do is bring it out and, and give them something to chew on, you know. And most of the time, we use, it's music. They're all into music. So we use music. And it's, a, it's as simple as saying, you know, who's your favorite artist? Let's trace them back where they come from. And these kids who teachers are finding impossible to get their attention because they're smarter than us and faster than us and have no patience. Suddenly, the kids are on a common ground. They're on, they're on comfortable ground because it's some music. You're talking about an artist that they, that they know and they, li- and they like. Okay, let's trace them back. Who is it? Uh, Beyonce? Well, Beyonce comes from this woman, Aretha Franklin. And uh, my dog is joining in here. Aretha Franklin fan. And a big Aretha Franklin fan. <laughs> uh, so, so we talk about Aretha Franklin. And by the way, she comes from Detroit. We talk about Detroit. And she comes from the gospel church. We talk about the gospel church. And she got involved in civil rights. We talk about civil rights. And they stay interested in all this. So the bottom line is, you know, giving them something in teaching in the present tense, I call it, give them something useful now, something they can use now. You can't tell them, learn this now and someday you're going to use it like they taught us. That no longer works with this generation. Give them something they can relate to right now. So, so the three things are integrate the arts into the system, create a new methodology that keeps their interest, which we've done, and eventually affect the dropout rate, which is an absolute embarrassment and a scandal and so terrible that nobody talks about it, okay? It's close to 50% in the poor neighborhoods. And then 50% of those kids that drop out end up in the criminal system. Those percentages are ridiculous, you know? I mean, it's terrible. So if a kid will just make it through high school, the statistics completely change and they become much more likely to stay out of the criminal justice system, you know, so, so we've, we've been doing that now for 15 years. We just went public with it on the Soul Fire tour. Oh, that's when we started giving out tickets to teachers to come to the show. And we did a, a seminar in between the sound check and, and, and the show. And, uh, and that's how we had registered, ended up re- registering 30,000 on that tour. And we, we, we're now at 45,000 or so. And partner schools all over the place, uh, they're starting to, to really use it. So very happy with that. Hopefully, it'll, it'll, it'll keep expanding, and eventually, it'll eventually become a normal part of, of our education system because it changes everything. It changes the effectiveness of education. Mm. Stephen, we started the conversation talking about before the cheering started and how being a rock and roller in New Jersey was not popular for you in school. It was not popular at home. It was perhaps popular in the bars and, and amongst the other musicians, but that was about it. 
was there ever kind of a meeting of the minds with your family? Like down the road, was oh. there was there a hey, you know what? We got what you're trying to do. Yeah, and yeah, it was it was yeah, it, it was great. The moment was when Bruce Springsteen, my crazy local friend, it's hard to describe how how much he has evolved through the years. He was he never he never spoke. You know, he was. He was like, it looked like, a, like well, you see, t- typical grunge type guys, you know, long hair, completely c- covering his face and just, you know, very, very, very quiet. So everybody, you know, thought, you know, he's a little strange. And my mother was always making him a sandwich, you know, because he was so skinny, you know. And, <laughs> and uh, when this local really freaky, freaky friend of mine, ends up on the cover of Time and Newsweek, <laughs> it really helped the family situation. <laughs> now, 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 Bruce, Bruce hated, hated every minute of it. I loved it. You know, I just loved it. I'm like, this is crazy. Uh, my friend's on the cover of Time and Newsweek, you know? Uh, and it really, all of a sudden, my parents were like, uh, wait a minute. There must be something to this, you know, <laughs> something's going on here. Then we were, we were finally were successful on, on top of that. Of course, that was five years later. But, but, but uh, that was the beginning of, of the break in the ice. And, and then once we really got successful and they saw that, well, you know, he's not going to turn out to be a drug addict or, or a criminal. It was somewhere around the, the point where I, you know, sent them to Hawaii for a vacation that I think they, they started to say, well, maybe this is not so bad, this rock and roll stuff. You know? <laughs> I sent them to Italy, I sent them to Hawaii. Now, th- that's great. But did they get to the point where they start analyzing like, Stephen, look, we like to talk to you. We have some notes about the, the horn part on 10th Avenue freeze out. Uh, you went to a minor chord there. What's going on there? Not my parents. Yeah. <laughs> No, 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 no. Although my, my father was, was, was a trumpet player, but he never played around the house. Uh, I, I don't remember him ever playing it, but supposedly he was a trumpet player when he was young. So, I mean, one of my big disappointments, I, I never really had any conversations with either one of them, you know, and, and I really, really, really regret that. I had one, one conversation with my mother that I can remember and none with my father, you know, it, it was, it, which is just a shame, but we, but we certainly reconciled and, and uh, from the eighties on everything was fine. Well, you've had plenty of conversations with us and we always appreciate them. And as someone who's admired your career for a long time, uh, I think I speak for a lot of people when I say we're looking forward to the book, appreciating how difficult it was to put it together and emotional, you will have many people reading it uh, with with uh, plenty of enthusiasm. Thank you. You know, most people have trouble deciding, finding things to put in. I had to decide what to leave out yeah. <laughs> because I know too much. So you know, <laughs> it's like it's a pretty it's a pretty uh, challenging. But uh, I always enjoy talking to you. But really, uh, uh, you know, you're 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 just a great conversationalist. Thanks to Stephen Van Zandt and his entire Renegade Nation team. Before the Cheering Started is a production of June 14th Productions and Gemini 13 Productions. This episode was created and written and produced by me. Guitar playing? That's me as well. No extra charge. 
The episode was edited by Lou Pellegrino. I'm Bud Mishkin, and this is Before the Cheering Started. Thanks for joining us on The Journey.